My current work is in the Comstar Lab. That's um, Comstar is a, a big EU-funded project um, on early life adversity and its effects on various biomarkers of ageing and behaviour. Um, so all of the work that I'm going to talk to you about today was done in collaboration with Daniel Nettle and Melissa Bateson, who are uh, the PIs in the Comstar Lab. So um, I realise that you are a sort of evolutionary audience. Um, and so I'm going to try and sell telomeres to you in my introduction um, because, you know, they're just this sort of uh, molecular measure mostly used in the ageing literature and you might be wondering why you should be interested in them. Um, so I'm going to have a little bit of a segue in my introduction into all the reasons that I'm excited about telomeres before I get on to the meta-analysis, which um, I'm afraid doesn't necessarily address those uh, sort of questions and hypotheses that excite me, but is still relevant and interesting, I hope you'll think. So... Firstly, uh, you might be wondering, if you're not familiar with them, what are telomeres, or telomeres, as some people pronounce it? Um, well, they are uh, DNA protein complexes that we have on the ends of our chromosomes um, that are thought, thought to form protective caps uh, that prevent, uh, essentially, chromosomal unraveling and fusions. Um, they shorten with each cell division, and as a result of this, are uh, quite widely used as a biomarker of ageing. Um, they also tend to shorten more rapidly with exposure to stress, and that's what my meta-analysis that I'm going to present to you today is about. Um, and the reason that they're interesting as a biomarker of stress, there's a couple of good reasons. So firstly, um, my uh, co-author, Melissa Bateson, has put forward a proposal that they might be this really useful biomarker that integrates the impacts of a range of different kinds of stresses and adversities in the environment into kind of an individual uh, sort of common cellular currency. So it might be a way to integrate all of these things that uh, an organism is exposed to into one single measure. And uh, in particular, what Melissa has put forward in the paper that I've mentioned here is the idea that this might be re a really useful measure of cumulative stress exposure in uh, an animal welfare context. So obviously we can't uh, really speak to animals or communicate with them very easily to understand what levels of stress they experience. But a single molecular marker that indexes uh, stress exposure might be really useful in an animal welfare context. In addition to that, um, in the human literature, uh, Alyssa Eppel, who's quite famous in uh, telomere worlds, has put forward the idea that uh, telomeres might be a psychobiomarker, so a biomarker that really indexes people's exposure to psychosocial stresses. And uh, a lot of those psychosocial stresses I will talk to you about in the context of my meta-analysis. Um, so this idea is floating around that these might be this really sort of useful single biomarker of lots of environmental exposures. And that's quite useful. So if you look at the diagram on the left, which uh, comes out of uh, the paper I've just mentioned by Melissa Bateson, um, what she suggests is that um, we might have this range here of both positive and negative uh, environmental influences that have a lot of downstream consequences in terms of things like cortisol levels and inflammation, and other changes inside the body, um, which might then actually feed into eventually telomere dynamics. Um, and so rather than go through the expensive and potentially kind of messy and error-prone um, process of measuring all of these environmental exposures here, what if we can just measure telomere length? 
and that can tell us something about all of these things in the environment that would otherwise be quite difficult, uh, time-consuming, expensive to measure. So that's one of the appeals as telomere, uh, of telomeres as a marker of stress exposure. It's the idea that we can just collapse all of this large range of exposures um, and look at one single uh, biological marker. And it actually goes a little bit further than that even. So um, this is a from a quite a really uh, useful review on human telomere biology. I'd recommend reading this if you get excited about telomeres after this talk. Um, so it's been put forward, the idea that we, we know that telomere attrition um, has both environmental influences, as I've talked to you about on the previous slide, but also that it's affected by genetic uh, variables. So um, people have different telomere lengths at birth. There's quite a lot of variation in that. And also uh, different genotypes are differentially sensitive to stress when it comes to telomere attrition. So for example, there are papers that suggest that so-called serotonin sensitive genotypes might actually be more sensitive to environmental stresses and therefore experience greater telomere attrition than the less serotonin sensitive genotypes. Um, and that is encapsulated, so potentially we are getting um, both the effects of environmental and genetic effects kind of encapsulated in a single measure of telomere attrition. Again, really appealing because it is hard to measure both uh, environmental effects and um, all the possible um, genotypes that might affect uh, the effects of environment um, very accurately. So if we could just measure telomere attrition, wouldn't that be great? Um, and also telomeres are quite predictive of uh, your risk of age-related disease and mortality. So there's a whole kind of what have been called telomere syndromes, so like a spectrum of age-related disease um, that are predicted by telomere uh, length and attrition. So they're this really promising biomarker, um, but they've only really started to be investigated and heavily used in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. There's still an awful lot we don't know about them, and we're still just coming to that point where synthesis of the findings could be really useful. So uh, this is the bit where I talk to you about evolution now. I haven't tested any of these, any of these evolutionary hypotheses uh, with my meta-analysis. I just want to tell you about them because they're cool and I think they're exciting. And in fact, because these are some of the reasons that I became most interested in, the, in telomeres as a biomarker to begin with. Um, so there's a lot of debate around, well, why, will, why do we have these telomeres? Why do they shorten with age? Are they a marker, simply a marker of aging, like a downstream product of, of somatic damage? Or are they, in fact, a mechanism that is potentially calibrating uh, life history strategies? So there's a couple of different hypotheses, and these are all really nicely summarized in a recent paper by Andrew Young, which you can see here, and I've cited at the bottom which is in a nice uh, special edition of Phil Philosophical Transactions, uh, which is all about telomeres. Um, and he puts, uh, really nicely summarizes these main hypotheses. Uh, one is the costly uh, maintenance hypothesis. So it's this idea that it is costly to maintain your telomeres, much, uh, much like it is to, to maintain your soma, and that there will be energetic trade-offs, um, and that sometimes it will be more adaptive to invest elsewhere than in your telomeres, uh, leading to sort of inevitable attrition. So this is essentially uh, like disposable soma theory, if you're familiar with that. There's also the functional attrition idea, and the main idea uh, in this kind of area is about counteracting cancer. So if you don't get a natural programmed cell death, you get cancer. 
um, and actually you need to have critically short telomeres in order for cell death to happen normally. So if your telomeres aren't shortening uh, enough, you could get be more likely to be prone to cancer and that could be a, a sort of a counter a counterbalancing force. Um, there's also the life history regulation hypothesis. Uh, so this is actually put a new idea that was put forward by Andrew Young in this paper. Um, although I think sort of until he explicitly put it in this paper, there were plenty of people who were thinking about this as a possibility. It's the idea that potentially um, telomeres are acting as a mechanism, as a, a thing that regulates uh, life history uh, features. And the reason for this, one of the reasons for this is that actually as telomeres shorten, they uncover uh, regions of uh, coding DNA that might actually potentially then alter behaviours um, and also phenotypes in general. Um, so it's possible that as telomeres are shortening, they're also having an effect uh, on the phenotype um, and that might be potentially a mechanism for regulating um, life histories. Um, there's also another really cool thing that I haven't got on this slide, but it's, um, it's called the thrifty telomere hypothesis by a chap called uh, Dan Eisenberg, and I really like it. It's um, really, really out there to be tested. We don't know very much about whether it could be true yet, but there, there is a, um, a phenomenon whereby uh, men who uh, have children later have children with longer telomeres. So these, these men who wait to have children later have shorter telomeres themselves, but their, their children tend to have longer telomeres. Um, and vice versa, so men who have children earlier uh, have longer telomeres themselves, but their children have correspondingly shorter telomeres. So there's this kind of inheritance of telomere length. Um, and the interesting idea that was put forward is that potentially this is a signaling thing. So if you're a man who has lived longer, you are obviously in a lower mortality environment if you are reproducing later yourself and you're therefore giving, uh, having children uh, that have longer telomeres which is kind of a signal to them that they are potentially in a low mortality environment themselves. So you're sort of potentially already setting up children to have a, a different life history strategy um, just by being a father with shorter telomeres in the sperm. So it is actually, and it is specifically a thing about sperm telomere length um, so it's quite an interesting idea. Um, it would be a really kind of low bandwidth way to pass on information about the environment to offspring, um, which I think is really neat. Uh, as I say, it's, not, it's, it's been a little tested, um, and it, I just think it's a really cool idea. So anyway, having talked to you about all of these things, um, I have not gone on to test any of these hypotheses in my meta-analysis. We were just going we were aiming to do something um, really broad with this, um, and not actually particularly evolutionary. I just wanted to make sure that you guys know that these, these uh, molecules are evolutionarily relevant. Um, so, um, what we were aiming to do with the meta-analysis, but the ideas we were aiming to test were as follows. Firstly, we wanted to just describe the breadth of work that has been done. As I say, there's only really been sort of 10 to 15 years of kind of a trend of working on telomeres. And so it's all sort of relatively new, and there's a lot we still don't know. So we wanted to look at the breadth of work on uh, the association between stresses or adversities and telomere length and see well what kind of study designs do we get, what kind of species have the work been done in, uh, what kind of stress types are we looking at um, and what kind of tissues and techniques are generally used. Uh, we also wanted to see whether or not there were consistent associations across animal species. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to tell you much about that for reasons I'll come on to later, uh, broadly sort of about the sample that was available to us. 
Um, we wanted to consider whether uh, associations would vary by the type of stressor examined. So one of our main goals with this meta-analysis was be, to be able to take lots of different types of stressors from, say, psychosocial stress uh, to um, exposure to environmental pollutants and put them on the same axis to see, well, all right, does having depression have more of an effect than exposure to toxins, for example? Um, we also wanted to compare early and late life, so that a lot of you will be familiar with uh, bodies of work that tend to emphasize uh, early life exposures um, and tend to suggest that exposures early in life kind of set someone up for, for later life health, and we wanted to see whether there were differences uh, with early and later life stresses. We also wanted to examine whether or not tissues or techniques that were used um, made a difference to the magnitude of associations reported, and that's a bit of a sort of uh, a geeky methodological thing, but uh, it was in there. So um, all of our kind of pre-registered materials are on the OSF, um, including all of these aims and some of the uh, templates and things that we used for, to do the work. Oh, and we also wanted to look at study design. Again, this is just a sort of methodological question. You might feasibly think that um, uh, experimental um, designs, for example, would produce stronger effects purely because there's less, uh, less noise in the data. Um, so we did a systematic search and it was really broad. We used the terms stress and adversity plus telomere, which brought out a whole load of things. We didn't just record things that were defined as stresses or adversities by uh, the authors. We also recorded a whole bunch of covariates um, that weren't necessarily defined as stresses, but that were expected to have an effect on telomeres. So we've got a real range of stuff came out of this. Obviously, we removed any duplicate papers, anything that wasn't available in English or wasn't original research, so reviews were all gone, meta-analyses were gone, um, and obviously things that weren't complete. Um, we also removed anything that didn't use study organisms within the animal kingdom. It might surprise you to know that there's a really large amount of research on yeast telomeres. Um, we did not look at those. Um, we also uh, ruled out anything that was done in vitro because uh, we wanted just naturalistic stresses and anything that was with genetically modified organisms because they might not have responded naturally to the stresses. Um, we also uh, didn't want to look at anything that was uh, applying uh, stresses to transplanted tissues or using kind of odd uh, stresses like radiation that are outside an animal's natural experience. We didn't. Uh, include the studies that examined intergenerational effects. And I would have really liked to have done this, but firstly, meta-analytically, it's very difficult to know how to look at intergenerational effects. Um, but also, um, there just weren't really enough of them for us to be able to do anything meaningful, even in terms of reviewing them. But there are some really interesting studies, just for anyone who wants to know, that look at things like, for example, uh, the effects of a father bird's disease status on its uh, chick telomere length, um, and they're quite nice kind of intergenerational transmission effects. Um, we also didn't look at stresses that uh, were to apply to individual organs and things in, um, in lab studies. And we didn't use anything that was overlapping. So obviously quite a lot of the human literature, we have these big cohort studies, which is great. And you might have multiple different papers that are looking at the telomeres of people in the same cohort. So when we came across associations between a stressor and telomere length that had previously been examined in a different paper in the same cohort, we just took first come first serve. So in the order we encountered them, we kept them in. Um, we also had to exclude studies that did not report usable statistics. Now this part is sad because 
um, what you can see on the right here, or maybe you can't see it very well, so I'll just tell you what, you, what is on the right here. Um, this is the range of statistics that we were able to use in our meta-analysis, and we converted them all via various different functions. I mean, if you're actually interested in the stats of this, it's all um, appended to the paper, which is uh, published in Royal Society Open Science. You can't actually quite see that because the bottom of the slide has been chopped off. Um, but basically we were able to take quite a large range of statistics, so as long as we had means and standard errors or means and standard deviations, Cohen's D, T statistics, F ratios comparing two groups, unstandardized and standardized uh, betas, or correlation coefficients, we should have been able to use them in our meta-analysis. But 122 of the potential good candidate papers after we'd really narrowed this down to a, um, a subset didn't actually give us uh, sufficient information for us to be able to calculate a usable correlation coefficient. So that's just things like people not reporting their standard deviations of their main variables, for example. So it's stuff that could really easily be fixed. If you're writing papers, please give these basic stats because it's really helpful to people uh, who want to do a meta-analysis. Um, so yeah, 43% basically of our candidate papers we couldn't uh, use because they just didn't include adequate statistics. Um, so, just a quick rundown. We started out with uh, nearly two and a half thousand papers after the duplicates had been removed from the searches. After title and abstract screening, we had 530 papers left to read in full. Of those, 138 uh, papers met the inclusion criteria that I've just told you about. And from those 138 papers, we were able to extract uh, 724 usable associations, so things where people had reported adequate statistics and they were of interest within our scope. We actually ended up with 15 different study species in the mix. And we really would have liked to have looked across these study species to see whether effects of stress were consistent. But methodologically, we were doing a thing where we wanted to have a random effect in our models of the individual study itself. The reason we were doing this is because each study will have had uh, certain features. For example, it will have come from a certain lab that used a particular method that maybe used certain stats uh, and had certain hypotheses that might also have biased the result. And so, unfortunately, what happened in the end, we had 90% humans in our in our uh, sample, and then these other study species, the other 14, it tended to be one species per lab. So <laughs> we had you know, a lab that studies starlings, and a lab that studies penguins, and a lab that studies hyenas. Now the problem is we then can't really distinguish between an effect of species and an effect of the lab that's doing the work. Um, and there might be all kinds of methodological features that sort of confound then the effect. So what we decided to do was just to narrow it down to the humans. Um, and of those, what I'm calling human associations, we had 543 that were not from subgroups or subscales. So if anyone's really nerdy and wants to go and look at the data on the website, we've published the data with the paper, we have actually published uh, the full uh, 724 associations, so across species, and also using subscales and subgroups. So in our main analysis, we only look at headline effects. So for example, the effect of perceived stress on uh, telomere length, but you will find if you go to the full data, which contains all these other associations, there might be subscales. So you might have a subscale of the perceived stress scale and how that affects telomeres. Uh, we didn't include those subscales and subgroups in the main analysis though. 
Um, and this is just a breakdown of the types of stressors that came out of the meta-analysis. So these kind of like naturally emerged uh, by taking the results of the searches and grouping them into uh, categories, loose categories. So I've put in bold here the ones that were really common. Uh, one of those is disease. So the association between having a given disease and your telomere length is very commonly studied. Um, what was also very commonly studied was nutritional variables. So there are lots of these big kind of cohort studies looking at loads of different details of nutrition, you know, from milk consumption to dim sum and green tea and all kinds of things were in there. Um, but we break this down later in the analysis into more sort of uh, sensible categories. Um, we have uh, psychiatric illness is really commonly studied and also you'll see here psychosocial adversity. Now there's quite a lot of overlap between those two categories because actually often what made the difference between whether uh, something was categorized as a psychosocial adversity or a psychiatric illness was just a threshold. So very often it would be say the Beck depression inventory that was used and people would sit somewhere on a scale and that would be included in psychosocial adversity but if people had over a threshold that was corresponding to a clinical diagnosis of depression, they would sit in psychiatric illness as a category. So it's a bit of an artificial divide between these two categories. Um, this is just for anyone who is interested in the sort of methodological things around telomeres to say that most of the studies, like the vast majority actually, were using qPCR. Um, and most of them in white blood cells. So that wasn't just leukocytes, there were other white blood cell components as well, um, sometimes comparing them, um, depending on diseases and things, they were, they were often interested in immune function. But the majority accused PCR and white blood cells, which was mostly. So basically, yeah, this is the polymerase chain reaction, and it's basically, this is, there's an interesting thing to compare these two because this is quite a high throughput technique and is used in a lot of the bigger studies, um, but is thought to be prone to more measurement error. And then there's this other method, Southern Blot, which is basically using a gel, and we're getting more of a distribution of telomere lengths. And this is thought to be less prone to measurement error, but is also less high throughput. So there's a bit of a debate in the telomere literature about which of these we should be using, which is why it's interesting to uh, include them. We've also got uh, flowfish and qfish here which are immunofluorescence techniques and as you can see are not very commonly used and there's this there's a thing here called telsec actually I want you to take this with a pinch of salt because there was only uh, three associations from only one unique study here so we've included it but um, we can't really say very much about it because again the effect of study is indistinguishable from the effect of the technique and what this was is actually a new whole genome sequencing measure of telomere length. Uh, that I don't actually personally fully understand. Um, so again, <laughs> I'm taking this with a pinch of salt. So um, also we have um, here, I've just included the other tissues. So this other tissues category was a real mixed bag that I couldn't do very much with. We're talking about everything from uh, telomeres in the substantial Niagara to like, you know, samples of the liver, um, all sorts of odd sort of uh, odd, measurements um, and then we've got buccal cells here which is mostly actually used in studies with children so cheek swabs basically. Um, as I said earlier we were quite interested in whether or not uh, there would be effects of the life stage at which the stressor was experienced and actually feasibly there might also be effects of the life stage at which telomeres were measured. Um, so we have here um, 
as you can see, uh, overwhelming number of the studies being uh, adulthood exposure and adulthood telomere measurement. So there are enough uh, studies in children to be able to say something about uh, whether there's a difference in effects, but we're a little bit underpowered. Um, and I've got a category here called embryonic exposure, which is basically just prenatal because we've narrowed this down to humans, but there were also in the animal literature things like uh, experiments exposing uh, chicken's eggs to cortisol um, as a stressor, other things like that. Um, we have pretty good balance of male and female uh, study populations, uh, the majority of the studies being with both sexes, which is useful. Um, most of the study designs are cross-sectional, so uh, correlational studies. Um, they're not very many experimental or longitudinal, um, which is sad because as I will come on to in the discussion, this means that we can't say very much about the causal direction of the associations that I'm going to talk to you about. There is an association, which way the cause goes, we have very little power to say at the moment. So, um, when we look just at the association, so this is all of the um, associations in that subset of uh, human data that I told you about, between uh, stress and telomere measurement. And so everything that is left of the center here uh, indicates a shortening of telomere length with an increased exposure to a stressor. These dotted lines are just showing you uh, the boundaries for what we would call a uh, conventionally small effect. So as you can see, the majority of the effects are um, what we would consider a small effect size. There is, however, uh, a, bit of a, a bit of an imbalance in that, the, um, as you might predict, if you think that telomeres, uh, that stress shortens your telomeres, we've got uh, more on the left-hand side here, uh, corresponding to shortening than we have um, effect here on the right. However, there was a little bit of a um, suggestion that there might be um, publication bias here. Um, and one of the ways that we're indi um, indicating this is to look at the uh, sample size of the studies. So these red blobs show a uh, sample size of average of over a thousand. Uh, so the, sorry, this is the mean effect size for the samples that are over a thousand in uh, sample size. The mean for 251 to 1000, for 101 to 250, and then for samples under 100. And as you can see, we're getting, in general, tend to have larger effects being reported for those smaller studies. And just to sort of extend that point a little bit, uh, this shows uh, the same graph that you've just seen but also it tells us whether or not the um, result was reported significant by the author. Um, and as you can see here, we've got kind of a, a roughly a spread that you would expect of the uh, null results, although maybe a little bit lacking to the right here. And then the significant results uh, more tailing off to the left here. Um, what we did was uh, also, this is in the, um, the supplement uh, to the paper, if you're interested, we did a Bavier and Hedges uh, analysis and we found that if you correct for potential publication bias, we go from having a central estimate of about negative uh, 0.15 to negative uh, 0.03. So the effect just kind of becomes quite tiny. Um, and interestingly, um, the, oh, I'm missing one of 
one part of my slide here for some reason. But yeah, um, the results basically suggested to us that not that there was a differential publication of null results, so it doesn't seem like null results are being suppressed, but that if there are small studies that find results in the unexpected direction, they seem to be potentially less likely to be published. So um, we've got a lot of underpowered studies here, um, but they're getting published because the results are expected. So that's just, a, again, a sort of caution on everything I'm about to tell you, um, because we've potentially got a wee bit of publication bias in there. Uh, just another way of looking at that is we broke uh, down. So this is the, uh, the central estimate for the entire data set. Um, and what we've got here is the uh, sample size on the left. And we've broken it down so uh, when you uh, look at these um, samples that are all uh, smaller than 100, we've actually got um, a much bigger central estimate and then it's reduced in the larger studies here. Um, these, uh, you'll see these on the various of my graphs, K and M. What these are are the number of associations and then the number of unique studies that those associations come from. So in many cases, we extracted multiple associations from a single study which is why, again, we have a random effective study in all of these analyses. Um, so we also did a power analysis. So if we were going to, if this is, we're assuming a true effect, and we're going to detect it at 80% power, then really uh, studies will need at least a sample size of 359 in order to be sufficiently powered. And actually, of our studies, only 38% of them met that criteria. So we're looking at a set of literature that is really quite underpowered here in general. And this is where it gets a little bit more interesting and a bit less about uh, meta-analysis methods. Um, so this is uh, comparing all of the main, the main high-level uh, categories of stressor that I talked about on my graph earlier. Um, and we wanted, as I said, uh, as, as one of our aims, to put all of these different types of stressors, which are quite a mixed bag that fall out of the literature, onto one axis so that we can sort of compare, well, what, what's worse for your telomeres, potentially. Okay. Um, so uh, interestingly, uh, oh, and just to point out, we've got black bars at the top here and then gray bars underneath. The black bars are when we take all of the data together. The gray bars are when we have a reduced version of the data set. So what we've done is we've taken out those underpowered studies to see how that affects our central estimate. So this is uh, the, the gray bars are with the uh, samples with, uh, sorry, the studies with samples under 100 removed. So what we have here is, whichever way we look at it, an effect of having a physical disease on your telomeres. Um, on the next slide, which hopefully you will be able to see, although it is quite small, <laughs> there's quite a lot crammed onto it, um, I break that down into the different types of diseases because this is not just a general effect of disease, but some specific diseases. Uh, environmental hazards uh, seem to have an effect on telomere length, but we've got these really broad uh, confidence intervals because, as you can see here, we've only got eight studies that looked at environmental hazards that met our criteria. And that was a mixture of different things like proximity to toxic waste sites, exposure to benzene in the workplace, uh, exposure to traffic pollution, and so on. So it's a, a bit of a mixed bag as well. Um, and what happens is that when we look at remove the underpowered studies, um, that uh, crosses our zero line there. So we, we become it becomes no longer significant. Um, having poorer nutrition. Um, 
is associated with having shorter telomeres, um, whichever of the samples you look at, even in the reduced data set. Psychiatric illness, also associated with shorter telomeres, although that uh, effect size reduces when you look at the reduced data set. And as you can see along here, all of these are really quite small effects, apart from this environmental hazards effect, which has got these huge confidence intervals on it. Um, Smoking, uh, there's a really good literature on this. There are other specialist meta-analyses that look specifically at smoking. I'll talk about those later. Um, so, you know, we've got quite, uh, quite small confidence intervals because we've got plenty of data on it, um, but the effect is actually quite small compared to um, what you might expect. Um, alcohol doesn't seem to do anything to telomeres, or at least not in our meta-analysis. Um, people always smile and look relieved when I say that. <laughs> um, we have uh, having poorer sleep doesn't seem to have an effect. Physical activity is significant, but it's just a tiny, tiny effect there. And of course, um, as I've said earlier, we don't know very much about the direction of causality. It could be that if you're in better shape and you have longer telomeres, you're just more able to do physical activity. So who knows which way around that association goes. Um, the psychosocial effects are interesting because they are, you know, relative to things like smoking, for example, are actually looking quite large. But again, that that reduces when you take the uh, the underpowered studies out of the out of the equation. And I think actually the psychosocial studies are some of the worst offenders when it comes to having underpowered studies. They tend to be really small groups comparing, say, you know, twelve stress mothers with you know, 12 people who aren't stressed. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done there, potentially. Um, effects of parental care are actually one of the few ones that are not significant when we look at the larger group and then become so when we look at, uh, when we remove the underpowered studies. Effects of socioeconomic variables, uh, so being lower socioeconomic status in this case is the way we've, we've flipped the axis on this graph. Um, they, they're really small. They're small but significant, and again, that's kind of in line with uh, other specialist meta-analyses I'll talk to you later. Um, and then we have this category of other. Now, this was, it's not surprising that that doesn't show anything because this was just a mixed bag of things that we couldn't really do anything with. But if you're interested in knowing what those other things were, um, they were things like exposure to uh, nitrox scuba diving in marines, for example. I don't, I don't know what you do with that. Um, but if you're interested in finding out, they're, they're actually all in the data supplement to the paper. So, I apologise if you can't see this very well. Again, our major aim was to put everything on one axis for you, but then the problem is that when you break it down into categories, what we get is this really kind of huge, uh, huge graph that's really hard to fit on a page. So. What I'm going to do is just talk to you about this result and hope that perhaps you can also see it. Um, the main thing to note, I think, is that um, it's not all diseases, when we look at having the effects of having a physical disease on telomeres, not all diseases are associated overall with shorter telomeres. So cardiovascular diseases seem to have an effect, but cancer, there's no association. Uh, diabetes, there, there is an association, and I'm, I've got to stop saying effect and start saying association because we really don't know about the causal direction of these. Uh, having HIV and AIDS looks like this quite large effect that has these really large confidence intervals and just about uh, is crossing zero there. And then Parkinson's disease and sleep apnea are quite interesting ones. So if you look at individual papers on Parkinson, Parkinson's disease and telomeres, people are saying, whoa, this is really weird. People with Parkinson's have longer telomeres. But then there are other papers that don't find that, and in overall it just sort of seems to balance out. 
Um, and sleep apnea is a funny one because there are there's a mixture of studies there with adults and children. And I can't quite remember which way around it is, but they, the telomeres seem to be, I think, longer in children with sleep apnea and shorter in adults with sleep apnea. And I'm not quite sure why that would be, but either way, it cancels out in the bigger picture. Um, so we've got the effect of environmental hazards that you saw before. Um, when we break down nutrition, uh, the main thing that I think I need to point out here is that the things, a lot of things are null in nutrition overall, but the things that were driving that nutritional effect that you saw on the previous slide are fruit, legume and vegetable consumption. Having a lower consumption of fruit and veg is associated with having shorter telomeres and uh, vitamin consumption, which actually comes from uh, a, mostly from a couple of randomized controlled trials of things like Omega oils, which seem to be good for protecting telomeres. Um, so actually those two aren't very surprising when you think that uh, fruit and vegetables and vitamins will increase antioxidants and antioxidants are thought to be a thing that is telomere productive. So that's one of the more straightforward things in my mind of the associations that we see. Um, when we look at psychiatric illness, it's the breakdown here if you can see it. Um, the interesting thing is that we've got uh, significant uh, effects of depression and anxiety. Um, they're relatively small, but they are, we've got sort of smaller confidence intervals on them because they're quite well studied. We then have what looks like um, quite a big effect of PTSD, but that goes away when um, we take out the underpowered studies, which was most of them. So again, I take this with a pinch of salt because we don't have very much power <laughs> once we take out the underpowered studies. So, I, you know, it, it's really tough to tell what's going on there. And then in schizophrenia, we have what looks like quite a large effect, um, which again goes away when we take out the underpowered studies. But that's really, again, difficult because there are just aren't very many of them. Oh, by the way, I should say that my rule was something got a subcategory if there were more than three independent studies that looked at it, uh, because otherwise you really can't say very much. Um, so there are things in here that didn't get subcategories just because there weren't enough studies um, to include them. And again, they're all in this other bar at the bottom, which does actually seem to be significant here. <laughs> again, we don't know. Can't say very much about that. The effect of study, uh, the effect of smoking, sorry, and alcohol is the same as before, similarly with sleep and physical activity. When we break down the psychosocial studies, what we get is um, categories including caregiving, um, so the stress of having a partner, for example, with dementia or of having a child with special needs. Um, we get the, um, the effects of having low mood, of having a small social network, social network of having high perceived stress and of having work-related stress and traumatic experiences. So those are all things that got their own categories. But the only thing that really uh, came out as having um, significant effects were um, low mood, which is not surprising because we see a, an effect of depression up here and it was often just um, the same measure, but on a continuous scale. Um, and we also see uh, an effect here of perceived stress um, and an effect of traumatic experience. Both of these disappear when we remove the underpowered studies again. Um, we're then looking at a breakdown, so parental care was the same as the slide before. We look at a breakdown of the types of socioeconomic status that are studied. Composite uh, measures don't seem to find anything, but there are, seem to be effects of education and income when you look at those independently and not of occupation. Um, again, there's a more specialist meta-analysis that looks at this and finds fairly similar results. Um, 
So just quickly, I'll go through moderators uh, to let you know that we looked at them um, to see whether or not there were any features of studies that would moderate the sizes of the effects that we found. And the main one was technique. Um, as I said previously, I want you to take the TELSEC result with a pinch of salt because we only have uh, three associations from one study here. Um, and, but this is not driving the effect. So even if we take this TELSEC result out, it's actually the immunofluorescence studies that are driving the effect. And what we find is that they tend to report larger effect sizes. I also looked at whether or not there were other features of the studies that used immunofluorescence, for example, the age of the participants or the types of stressor that they were studying, and they were a real mixed bag. So I don't think that effect of immunofluorescence is being, uh, of using immunofluorescence technique is actually being driven by any other study feature. Um, I think it is just uh, potentially a more sensitive um, technique. Um, but then here, the interesting thing, as I said, there's a bit of a debate in the literature about qPCR versus southern blot. Um, and a lot of people have argued that qPCR has, uh, is much more prone to measurement error and shouldn't be used. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a difference between the average uh, sort of effect sizes that are being reported. Um, interestingly, that potentially that is because uh, studies that use qPCR also are able to use much larger samples um, because it's a more high throughput technique. So uh, potentially that's sort of balancing out <laughs> the measurement error. Um, or it might not be. It's, it's very difficult to draw firm conclusions about sensitivity from this, but there is this moderating effect anyway. Um, I also just want to go over very quickly um, the fact that we looked at some other meta-analyses, a lot of these came out really recently, like around the time that we were writing this up. So we've got a lot of meta-analyses came out 2017 and 2016. And we thought, great, now we can have a look and see whether these individual meta-analyses that tend to look at just one thing, they tend to look at just cardiovascular disease or just diabetes, are they drawing the same conclusions as us as kind of a sanity check and also as a kind of independent replication of what we find? Um, and the answer is basically yes. There are a few uh, differences where I've put things in bold here, um, but they're not big differences. So for example, in sleep apnea, um, this uh, meta-analysis here found that um, there were shorter telomeres in sleep apnea. We found that there was an association, but that it also, um, it wasn't quite significant, but it was in a similar direction and it was actually a, a fairly similar size. Uh, when we got down to it. So that's not a great difference. Um, similarly, we find um, we found uh, an effect of telomere length in depressive, dis shorter telomere length in depressive disorders, which is mirrored in a couple of different meta-analyses that are existing, specifically on depression. Um, and the only difference is that when we reduce our data set to, uh, by removing those underpowered studies, it becomes a marginally non-significant thing. Um, but again, we are reducing our power by removing underpowered studies, so um, I'm not too worried about that. Um, similarly, we find uh, similar results uh, in schizophrenia. So in this particular meta-analysis, they find no significant association, and we find one, but it becomes non-significant in our reduced data set. So again, we're drawing roughly similar conclusions. Um, Again, similar conclusions for smoking and physical activity. Um, we have similar conclusions for stress. Uh, this is for sort of psychosocial stresses. Um, and this uh, meta-analysis here concluded possible publication bias, which again mirrors what we have found. Um, and we find that when we remove, when we adjust for publication bias, we get this kind of 
um, this effect whereby a weak correlation becomes uh, non-significant. Um, similarly, as I said earlier, there have been these, um, these uh, meta-analyses specifically on socioeconomic variables, um, and we find broadly similar conclusions, except that they do not find an association of socioeconomic status in general uh, for composite measures, which is what we find. But we do find when we look at income alone, if you uh, separate it out, that, that there is uh, some association. But again, it's one that becomes non-significant when we reduce the data set to the, by removing the underpowered studies. So anyway, the main message of that is really just to say that broadly we're finding the same things as these other more specialist meta-analyses, but what we have done is look at the much bigger picture and put it all together on a single axis for people to really be able to make comparisons. And that is useful, I hope. However, um, what does this mean for our question of whether or not of whether or not um, telomeres might be a good uh, marker of cumulative stress. Um, it does seem that they're sensitive to a wide range of exposures, which is good for that, um, for that hope. Um, however, they, we're getting really small effects. Now, it might be that if you look at someone who's been exposed to a whole range of these different stresses that I've talked about, you see much bigger differences because, as, because they are cumulative. Um, but that is something that's yet to be tested, I believe. Um, the other thing that was uh, quite comforting is that there is no uh, effect of potential moderators or very little effect of potential moderators, which um, means that we've, it's hopefully kind of like quite a universal thing regardless of methods. Um, as I've said, the reported associations tended to be quite small um, and many of the studies that we're basing these conclusions on were underpowered. Um, so we really need sort of better powered studies in the literature. Also, I talked about publication bias earlier in terms of the studies that seem to come out, but there is also bias within papers. So when we were looking at these meta-analyses, we were looking to extract multiple different associations, often from papers. But we found that authors had a tendency to report adequate statistics for the associations that were significant, and for the other things, they just say the association between X and Y was not significant and give them no more information. Or maybe just a p-value. This was not helpful to us. So <laughs> again, like this is a plea. If you've got uh, null associations in your, in your work, please report them because they are useful information for people who want to do meta-analyses. Um, also, as I've said, though, we have a limited ability to make causal inferences based on the data that are out there. Um, there were very few longitudinal studies, and there were studies that declared themselves longitudinal in the title, but were often looking at stress longitudinally and not at telomeres longitudinally. And that's quite tricky because with telomeres, as I said earlier, people often have very great variation in their baseline telomere length. And so what we want to look, is, look at is the attrition over time and the rate of attrition over time. That is a much better marker than just length as a snapshot. And it could be that we might see much larger effects uh, than I've shown you today if we were not having uh, the effects washed out by that variation in baseline telomere length. Um, so that's quite an important thing. Longitudinal designs would be great. Um, however, I, I do understand they're kind of challenging and expensive. So um, as I've just said, uh, that was the majority of the associations were uh, cross-sectional correlational studies. 91% uh, of them, in fact. Um, so also more experiments are needed. Um, 
So, um, back to some of the interesting open questions uh, about telomeres that I think um, I'll be wanting to, to look at next. Um, so firstly, we've got questions about whether telomeres are a marker, a marker of aging, just a sort of passive thing that's happening with exposure to, to stresses, or whether in fact um, they're a mechanism, whether they're calibrating uh, to some extent somatic repair. Um, also, uh, questions about the direction of causation um, are different for different types of stresses. So, for example, uh, some external stresses, for example, exposure to uh, pollution, you've probably got a little bit more certainty about the, the causal direction there of the association. But when it comes to things like disease, um, very often in the medical literature, people are looking at the association between disease and telomere length because they're thinking perhaps having short telomeres makes you vulnerable to disease. And maybe it does, or maybe having uh, a disease shortens your telomeres. And actually, for different diseases, the causal direction may be different, but we just don't know at this stage. There's also a really intriguing possibility, um, summarized in a paper by my co-authors, Daniel and Melissa here. And this is, again, in that nice uh, Phil Trans um, special edition on telomeres. Um, what they were interested in is this idea that having shorter telomeres might alter your behavior. Um, and so it may be that having a less healthy behavior, for example, smoking, which is the example they use in this paper, um, that might shorten your telomeres, just exposure to cigarette smoke. But you might also be more likely to smoke if you have shorter telomeres, because perhaps you're, you're behaviorally uh, discounting your health. Uh, and that's a possibility they explore in this paper. And it's also a really interesting possibility when we think about the causal direction of, of some of these effects. Uh, as I've said, there's also this, uh, this idea that uh, telomeres might uh, play a role in managing life history trade-offs, which again might affect uh, your vulnerability to disease uh, by your telomere length. Um, I hope that I've covered everything clearly. Please feel free to ask questions if I haven't. I'm going to apologise because my slides for some reason have just not come out like they were designed. Um, and so I hope you've managed to see everything that was important. Um, so thanks for listening and do you have any questions?